The football season is reaching its conclusion and Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got a crucial week of fixtures left to play in the Premier League and with the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and the Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook, joined again today by James Moore and Charlie Eccleshare. It's a good day for Tottenham yesterday, beat Leicester City 3-0, and Charlie, there's only one question on everyone's minds. Is Harry Kane back? He's back and better than ever, according to your piece this morning, Jack. He's uh, evolved and um, we could be seeing a new version of him that's not just a goal scorer but uh, links play creates goals plays Kevin De Bruyne-esque passes I'm slightly paraphrasing your piece here but um, he, he was great yeah I mean it, it felt like the culmination I suppose of the last few weeks where he's been getting you know he's been getting his sharpness back hasn't he um, and and this was his best performance by, by a distance coming hot in the heels of the Newcastle game which was maybe more of an old school Kane performance um, you know he wasn't so involved perhaps in, in the build up but scored two really well taken goals quite predatory goals um, he looked he does look to be back yeah it's, it's very very exciting for Tottenham uh, a shame in a way that it's coming just before uh, another break but really really good news given how concerned we were after that United game yeah it was massively encouraging um, I think I think the thing you picked up on quite early uh, after the restart, Jack, was how Kane was making these runs in behind that we had kind of grown to expect him to, to not make anymore. And it just kind of, you know, we saw it in the West Ham game, the run through for, for the goal that he scored in that game. There were one or two others in the first few games after the restart. But but what's really surprised me is physically that he's looked so good. And he's just, he's, it kind of feels like he's somewhere approaching the level he was at before. And that was... That was the thing we were kind of concerned about, wasn't it? I don't think we ever had any doubts that he'd find a way of scoring goals one way or the other. But I think the thing we were slightly concerned about was that he'd lose more than a little bit of pace and a bit of mobility and that that might sort of stop him from doing the kind of things he was doing before and scoring the kind of goals that he was scoring before and certainly in that volume. But in, in the last two games, it's really felt like he's, his movement has been good. The way he's dropped off has been really impressive and the past he's played have been superb, but it's a slightly different thing. Just on that West Ham goal as well, James, like that, um, do you remember he kind of collapsed to the floor after and it felt like this Herculean effort? Yeah. Um, even though he had ran in behind, but it was like, you know, should it be quite that much effort, you know, to run in behind and score against a pretty ropey West Ham? Um, so it, it feels so different from then now where he's got that sharpness back and where... You know he he he's full of hard running because he's always been such a strong runner, not not burning pace, but someone who's you know really good yeah. uh, at running on the shoulder. I mean, I think you saw that from when he went shoulder to shoulder with Wes Morgan in the second half, mm. right? I mean, uh, you know, Wes Morgan is a big guy and a really strong defender, and also really clever when it comes to those kind of tussles. He knows 
he knows the line. He knows you know how you lean into a centre forward to knock him off the ball rather than foul him. He's really good at that, and he always has been. Uh, and Kane was able to just kind of hold him off and get past him. And unfortunately, he didn't get a chance to score in that incident. But there were just signs again of, of that kind of physicality that I, I certainly was concerned that maybe we wouldn't ever see again. Um, I mean, the two finishes kind of speak for themselves, don't they? We've, we've seen both of those two goals before. That, that kind of the first I mean the, the second one obviously the comparison to that Arsenal goal was really obvious and I think everyone on Twitter has said that so we don't need to go through that again but that first goal I feel like he scored that kind of goal quite a few times where he's particularly when he's taking it on his left foot and hit across the goalkeeper like that he just seems to be able to sweep the ball like that in a way that not many other centre forwards can do you think we were kind of collectively were we justified in being worried or was it just paranoia and fear, I suppose? I mean, I think I think it's probably quite well placed, that, isn't it? I mean, I mean, the numbers do back it up, to be fair. Yeah. But- You're talking about an 18-month period where mm. he had three or four injuries that, you know, would, would derail any player. Um, and I think it probably wasn't unreasonable. And uh, by the way, we shouldn't get carried away just yet either. That's the I was, other side I was just going to say that. We yeah. should also check ourselves. But... I, you know, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that that kind of thing would have an impact on a player. And I think quite often we've seen that that derail a player's career, if not entirely, then certainly partially. And I, you know, I don't think it was sort of unreasonably, unreasonably pessimistic or negative to think that that would have an impact on his career. Now, there are, there are kind of signs in these last couple of games that perhaps he could get back to that kind of level again. And if he does, then we're laughing, really, because he, he's going to score 25, 30 goals a season for the next kind of four or five years. It's ludicrous. I mean, obviously, the injuries have had a big impact, and I don't. Look, somebody put put in the comments the story like, "Can do we actually know how quick he is now compared to how he used to be?" And the answer is no. Like, I don't have these stats on speed are really hard to get hold of. So, I'd be really interested if anybody could tell me. I do think that he doesn't have the same speed that I think he he did when he first emerged into the Tottenham team. And I don't. I don't think he. I don't think he. I kind of remain to be convinced that he has the same physical explosiveness. But the point I tried to make in my piece is, even without that, he can still score some of the goals that he used to score. Like he, like I said, like his movement, I think, is getting better and better after a period in which it was a bit flat a lot of the time. And on top of that, he's got this amazing new creative skill, which I think was never never massively part of his game before because of how he used to play. And he he can now. I remember Arsene Wenger once used the the phrase nine and a half about Robin van Persie, basically as being a striker who could be the kind of number nine and the number ten. And that's kind of how I feel about Kane as well now. Like he can he can lead the line almost as well as ever before. He's still absolutely deadly in the box. And on top of that, he's got this amazing creative skill. Like those two um, those two passes to to Son yesterday. The first one was an assist. The second one, Son basically tripped over his feet on the edge of the box, and so it, it wasn't an assist. They were incredible. And like, as I said, like not many other centre-forwards. How many other centre-forwards can play those? Like Roberto Firmino, I suppose? Well, I was going to say, actually, because Firmino's been called a 9.5 as well. So it's interesting, um, that comparison. 17 days ago, we were all writing off Kane and Tottenham. And now Kane's <laughs> good and Tottenham are good. So who knows where what the future will hold. But I do just generally get the sense in the last few few games that he has been getting closer and closer. He has been getting more shots. He has looked been looking a bit fitter and stronger every single time. And yesterday, I just had this really satisfying feeling that it had all clicked. Also, Jack, obviously you cover England as well. And am I right in thinking he's been doing a bit more of that for England recently? Because, like, laying on goals, I think it was the Bulgaria game, which obviously is remembered for 
you know very different reasons unfortunately but I think in that game he laid on a few goals and looked like he was playing a slightly different role you know more of that 9.5 kind of shades of Sheringham in some of his link-up play. That's been one of the big inventions I think of Gareth Southgate since the World Cup has been the switch from the 3-5-2 of the World Cup to a 4-3-3 so you've got Kane and two and two players alongside him, which will be two out of Sterling, Rashford and Sancho, and with Kane in, slightly, in a slightly deeper role. And as James said, that that 3-2 win in Seville, which I think is probably like the best England game I think I've ever seen, he scored three goals on the break in the first half, all of which came from, no, I think two of the three of them, came from Kane pulling the strings um, in that slightly deeper role. And I'm sure that is how England will play going into the Euros, because it has been really, really effective in the last two years. For Tottenham, obviously, Son is probably at about the level you're talking. And yes, maybe Lucas Moura isn't there and we'll probably come on to him later. But that feels like a system that could work for Tottenham um, just as well, potentially. Yeah, I think that's how I'd like to see Tottenham play. Like that kind of 4-3-3 with Kane and two runners either side of him. Uh, With Kane, you know, Kane... And Bergwijn as well as an option. Yeah, completely. With Kane able to get in the box or to drop a bit deeper. I mean, it's... It's. I mean, in, I mean, I was going to say it's slightly complicated because Tottenham have Deli Ali. I suppose in theory, England have Deli Ali as well. I don't really think Deli Ali can play in that system, but that's not a reason not to do it. Like if Ali doesn't get in the team, doesn't get in the team. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of just sense that that might be the direction Tottenham go in, um, and it would be really, really interesting to see. Right now, we're offering listeners of this podcast a thirty-day free trial with the Athletic for a limited time only. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod to sign up and try out some of the best football writing anywhere. You can also access our whole network of podcasts ad free. So go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Now that we've had five games at Sheffield United, this has been an amazing upturn. They've won, they've won four and drawn one. So that means they've taken, I'm trying to do the maths in my head, 13 points out of an available 15. In that run, they've scored nine goals and only conceded two, which were the Lacazette one, which is kind of freakish, and then Matt Ritchie at St. James's Park, which was that error. Uh, defensively, it's kind of a, it, it's been an amazing turnaround, hasn't it, Charlie? Why did you have any idea after Sheffield United that this could happen? I wouldn't have thought they were going to win four and draw one of the next five. No, and, and James James and I were talking about this this morning actually, and it, it felt at that point as though mid-table felt more likely. I mean, Spurs were ninth then, uh, looked like Europe was going to fall away from them. There were questions after that game in the pre-Everton press conference. You know, would he play, would he give some of the youngsters a chance because it felt as though there wasn't that much to play for for the rest of the season? I mean, that's honestly what the mood was like at that time. And and to be fair, he said, you know, there's still a huge amount to play for and and so it's proved. Um, So no, I mean, I wouldn't. I I guess... (laughs) If you were being um, very positive at that time, you could have, and now with hindsight, you could have said, well, look, they've got Kane, Son and Sissoko, three key players coming back who haven't played for ages. What will happen is they'll play themselves into fitness and they'll be much more effective in the coming weeks. And when you, when that happens, you'll see a change. And that is what's happened. So I guess we could have foreseen that, but you know, it would have felt a, a little bit like clutching at straws uh, five games ago, wouldn't it? Another big thing is that, which 
you know is is you can call this luck or you can call it um good conditioning good good fitness uh, and all of that sort of thing is that they have been able to play a very settled team and that's something Mourinho loves loves doing so he's i think it's three games in a row now the same team uh they look so settled as a result uh i do think as well bringing in harry winks and and you know we we've been calling for that i think for some time that you know they look better when they have three in the middle i think often we've been talking about we want to see Ndombele in there as well but uh either way you know it's meant winks being in there having sissoko and lacelso they look better when he's there they played as a two a couple of times uh, lacelso and sissoko didn't really work and and against sheffield united they played with mora bergvine and sonal behind kane and they ju- it just didn't quite click. They lack guile. They lack creativity. I just feel they look a lot more balanced with those three central midfielders. And I know they've played in lots of different systems during this five-game period, but I also think Winks kind of allows you to do that. Uh, they can be more flexible with the system, whereas like in that Sheffield United game, for instance, they it didn't feel like they had a huge amount of other options. So all of those things have come together. They're also defending uh, a lot better. I mean, I was looking at this. They've... Yeah, they they uh, they've kept three clean sheets in their last five games, and in Mourinho's first twenty nine games, they kept four clean sheets. I mean, that's a huge turnaround. Uh, and again, James and I discussed this this morning. Alderweireld's come in, and he's looked so much more solid than he had done previously. Uh, you know, it looks a little bit like he's back to his old self. And whether he benefited from a rest, uh, hard to say. But that's that's uh, been a big boost as well. And finally, sorry, because I realize this is a very long answer. Um, I do think it helped them a little bit. A couple of those games, like Leicester and Arsenal, they've played teams who generally like to have a lot of possession and be on the front foot. And they've been able to sit deep. They had very little possession in both of those games. Um, yesterday was their lowest ever in a home game um, since Optus started recording the day 2003. That was 29.5. They 37% against Arsenal. Uh, and when they beat City, incidentally, earlier in the season, they had 33%. And that has often worked for them quite well. So... I think they've just they, they've been very clear in what they want to do, and when you have the same personnel, that makes it easier, and it's all come together. And could could you know could we have foreseen those things? I think I think it's hard to when you've just seen a team wilt against Sheffield United, and you know even in this run of five really good games, there was that awful draw at Bournemouth. Everton at home wasn't great, but generally, yeah, it's been really positive. And credit credit as well because Mourinho took that gamble with basically calling out their mentality. And they have responded well. You know, that could have gone the other way. I think a lot of people thought, has he gone nuclear too early here? But it's a gamble that seems to have paid off. Yeah, I did think that was probably the most complete performance we've seen from from Mourinho's Tottenham. One thing that I think somebody somebody pointed out to me on Twitter in a comment, I'm sorry, I've forgotten, who, I've forgotten your name, but someone said, the interesting thing is, would Spurs fans in the ground have accepted this, having such a low possession game at home against you know a good team, but not a top, top team? Uh, if there have been 60,000 Spurs fans wanting them to get on the ball. Um, James, what do you think about that? I mean, I think, to be honest, I, given they took an early lead against a side who are higher in the table, um, I, I think it probably wouldn't have been too much of a... I don't think we would have had too much grumbling. I mean, I, 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 without wanting to defer that to my conversation with Charlie this morning, as he has done twice already. Um, <laughs> it was quite the conversation. <laughs> it was a great chat. Um, it didn't feel like the kind of game it didn't feel like a sort of you know like Spurs were kind of pegged in and under the cosh and hacking the ball away desperately at any point I mean Leicester did have a very good spell at 1-0 in the first half kind of just before Spurs scored just before Kane scored those two goals towards the end of the half where 
um, you know, in particular, they had the the uh, the Perez shot that that Lloris saved superbly, but it, it it didn't really feel like Spurs were kind of surrendering possession and making mistakes and looking uncomposed and looking like they would concede. Really, I was quite surprised to see that the XG and Charlie, you may have missed a hand, but I think it was something like Spurs were zero point seven and Leicester were two point zero one or something like that. I was actually kind of surprised that it was quite as extreme as that because it. It didn't really feel to me like Leicester had many good chances. Uh, and I think it, it was definitely one of those games that kind of belied the possession numbers because I, I really didn't, it really didn't feel... It wasn't like the Manchester City game where they really did ride their luck and City had a lot of really good chances, obviously, including the penalty. And it was, you know, sort of baffling, really, but Spurs managed to come away with a 2-0 win. In this instance, it felt to me like, as you say, Jack, Spurs are basically letting Leicester have the ball because they, they were confident they wouldn't be able to do anything with it that could hurt them. And, and that was due to the way they were set up defensively. And very, very Mourinho, they won the game in the first half and then just kind of sat back in the second half, you know, tried to catch them out on the counter if they could, they couldn't, and they won the game 3-0. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there was a, it did feel very controlled. I mean, yeah, the, the XG number is 0.77 for Tottenham and 2.06 for Leicester. But yeah, I mean, when you're ahead for pretty much the whole game, that can happen. Um, also, can I just pick up something you said there, Jack, which I think is really interesting, like that Mourinho explanation. Um, I thought those quotes were brilliant and and it might interest our readers. I mean, that is part of the reason why as reporters, it's Mourinho is such a interesting person to cover because he will let you in in that way. I mean, I know you know, most managers, a lot of managers are very wary about talking in those terms, which, you know, can be frustrating because you really, I think we find that really interesting. And I think a lot of supporters do as well. So it is great getting those kinds of insights. Yeah, what was so funny about it is Mourinho started off by saying, I think it was an intelligent performance. And he's obviously like pretending that he means the players were really intelligent. But obviously, we all know that what he really means is I came up with this brilliant plan. <laughs> uh, but fortunately, my players were able to do it. And I think with a lot of managers, it's like when they when they come up with a plan to win the game, sometimes, and you know, Mourinho is by no means the only one who does this, they can't wait but to but to tell people all about it. And there was also a great moment of like, um, I mean, depending on how you look at it, either he's either patronising Brendan Rodgers or he's being incredibly magnanimous. And he says, um, I want to be honest to Brendan. I don't remember somebody was honest to me when I was playing without a striker, but I want to be honest to Brendan. To play without Ricardo, Soyuncu and Shilwell is a destroyed back line. Uh, so yeah, it was... Uh, but you're right, it is great to have a manager who just talks through your their plans because, you know, as a journalist or as a fan, you you'd often often you don't really have access to trying to know exactly what a team is trying to do on the pitch. So it is great that Mourinho's, you know, M- Mourinho wants the world to know how smart he is. And so you get access to to all that kind of stuff. Like Pochettino would not really go into specific, he would never really lift the lid on specifics in quite the same way. While we're talking about Mourinho press conferences, can I just flag that Charlie was uh, highlighted by a Twitter banter account because he was giving a, a given a, I mean, they sort of described it as a bit of a dressing down. I'm not sure it's quite as quite as harsh as that. But again, this is something we've discussed over the phone, James. We should just start recording those conversations. Yeah, Yeah, I, I quite enjoyed it. I mean, I um, yeah, I think it was Sporf was the account in question. And if you want to read more on accounts like that, read Jack's excellent piece on um, kind of. Yeah, thanks very much. I didn't even plan that. Um, 
but yes, anyway, I, I asked it, this was before the, after the Newcastle game, I asked him why, what, what Bergwijn needed to do to play more, because I thought he played really well when he came on. And he uh, talked about how uh, we as we journalists always focus on who isn't playing and how, and, and, and it, it actually, I thought, the reason I kind of quite enjoyed it and think Mourinho did as well is it gave him an opportunity to repeat a line from previously that it shouldn't be a big deal uh, if really good players are on the bench. He said this when asked about Ndombele, which felt a little spurious on that occasion, but maybe a bit more justified here. He said, you know, at Chelsea, at Liverpool, City, United, Arsenal, whatever, it's not a big deal and it shouldn't be at Tottenham. It should be the norm that you have really good players on the bench. And there, and there is a lot of truth in that. So no, it was, I, I enjoyed the sparring. Something else from Mourinho that we've seen this week, which has got a lot of people talking, is a leaked clip from the forthcoming Amazon documentary, uh, which will be out soon about Tottenham's season, in which Mourinho is giving what we, I think is a very early team meeting to his players. If you listen to this podcast, you probably have seen it, but just for context, here it is. You need to communicate. And maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm wrong. I feel that you are... Honestly, a very nice group of guys, but for 90 minutes, for 90 minutes, you cannot be nice. For 90 minutes, you have to be a bunch of <laughs> of intelligent, <laughs> not stupid <laughs> bastards in the sense that you are there to win matches, man. Yeah, that, that does sound really evocative, doesn't it? You don't yeah. feel like you're about to get a kind of limp defeat yeah it sounds more it sounds more gladiator than like southampton defeat on new year's day doesn't it yeah yeah exactly do we know what game it was i'm assuming it must have been quite early right it must have been one of his early yeah erickson is still there erickson yeah erickson has a look on his face thinking wow okay yeah not for me i actually quite like being honestly a very nice group of guys I think that's kind of the whole Christian Eriksen vibe. Uh, I'm not sure he really wants to go around like waving waving cards at the ref and kicking people off the ball and and wasting time and all the rest of it. But it does really tie. I mean, we've talked about this a lot on this podcast, haven't we? And um, we did a piece on it. If, uh, we had a kind of statistical look to see if this idea that Tottenham were too nice played out by the numbers, and we used that metric. Uh, which was initially used by Jack uh, in your piece earlier in the season about tactical fouls, and we. Uh, we looked at that in relation to Tottenham and whether they were doing enough of it, and it looked as though they weren't. So this, and because Mourinho, that came off the back of Mourinho talking about Tottenham as being too nice again a few months ago. So it, it is a well-established trope, and you know the Pochettino talks about wanting good guys and this sort of thing. So it's uh, as well as being a really funny clip, it, it does tap into something that I think has been, uh, you know, an accusation levelled at Spurs for quite a while. James, as a fan, would you like like do you want to see Spurs be C words? Like or does it matter to you? It doesn't really matter to me either way. I mean if they're nice guys and they're winning football matches, that, that that's fine. Um I, this is kind of what you expect from a Mourinho, from a Mourinho team, isn't it? That uh it's quite hard to talk about this without repeating the word. Not that I ever use it that often anyway. Um I, I think you kind of expect well shithousing is the word we've used quite a few times on this podcast, and that, that's kind of that's Sort of in the same ballpark, isn't it? I think that's kind of that's kind of what you expect to be a bit to be a bit clever, to be a bit canny, um, and that is definitely a thing that that has been levelled at Spurs teams for you know l- longer than I I would care to imagine. I mean, it just go back years and years and years where they just haven't been clever enough in certain situations. They haven't 
sort of, you know, got around referees and sort of planted the seed and, um, you know, kind of got into the referee's head that he's got something wrong or whatever. I mean, that's less of a thing now, I guess, with VAR. Um, But yeah, I I can definitely see that's something they needed to add. I mean, and as you kind of suggest, Jack, that probably wasn't for everybody. Um, But it is... It's Mourinho's way of doing things, isn't it? So that's that's kind of a, that's kind of what you're part of what you're buying into when you're bringing him in, I guess. I mean, I always think back to like the Battle of the Bridge, but I kind of, I, I referenced that in a piece I did recently on the Celso, who I think does embody more of that kind of shit housing. And and to me, that that Battle of the Bridge always felt a little bit affected and put on. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm very much in the minority of Spurs fans when I talk about this, but I, I it's, it's still incredibly annoyed by. Uh, mm. By what happened that night, it's completely you know they were two 0 up and they completely lost their heads. Yeah, which isn't to say I think they would have won the league by that stage, but uh, you know uh, they completely lost it and it was, it's kind of a bit embarrassing really. And uh, to be honest, it felt like the following season, and I think we have talked about this before. Um, like it, it took them up to the Chelsea game the following season to kind of really click into gear, and it kind of felt like they were sort of, they drew a lot of games in those first couple of months. And I think they played Chelsea and Jack you might remember. I think it was about December maybe at Stamford Bridge. Um, November, I think. Yeah, November. Yeah, and they lost the game two one, and they went and they went one and up quite early. Ericsson scored, um, yeah. and it kind of felt like until that point they were sort of just waiting for that game, and then they lost that game, and then they kind of kicked on with the season after that. And it just felt like mm. it was such a big distraction. Like they let the the, the the stuff with Fabregas and Hazard saying they wanted Leicester to win the league, and they just uh, that clearly let that get to their heads completely. It's just, it know, just felt, yeah, expect, it, felt really, it? it felt really premeditated, that whole approach. I mean, it reminded me a little, you know, do you remember in the lead up to the 2015 election when Ed Miliband was like, hell yes, I'm tough enough. And, and it just felt really like put on. It sort of reminded me of that. It was like they really wanted to show Spurs that they were tough and they weren't these nice guys and just went about it in, I think, quite a misguided way that obviously backfired on them, as you say, because they threw away a two-goal lead. Are you comparing Eric Lamella stepping on Cesc Crabregas's hands to Miliband not being able to eat a bacon sandwich? <laughs> no, more just specifically that, uh, you know, under the, the Paxman grilling. And, and yeah, he, yeah, yeah. Got, he said tough in us initially, which when you're, you know, it, it was quite a gaffe, but it's, I, I still enjoy watching it from time to time. The one thing I wanted to say about this, and I, I kind of completely agree with both of you, is that, like, obviously the battle of Stamford Bridge... Tottenham were not in control like yeah they were going around kicking people but they lost control of the game they lost control of themselves and the situation whereas what Mourinho is advocating is kind of uh, is the players to be in total control of their little bits of dark arts if you look back at that Chelsea game which which was ostensibly still Mourinho's team I know he had left by that point but a few months beforehand but it was his team Ch- Chelsea were particularly in the first half you know there, there, were, there were lots of sort of niggling little fouls and little kicks and whatever from Chelsea players as well but you never see that now because it was only the first half and it was kind of subtle and, and clever. And the Spurs players obviously reacted badly to all that stuff. And then once the game sort of started to slip away from, from them and it went to 2-1, then suddenly they're like retaliating with these ludicrous challenges and like fouls off the ball and stuff. And this completely, you know, and then Dembele missed, I think, was it like six games or something? He had a six game suspension. I mean, and it cost them in the next season. It's just, yeah. And you're right. It's kind of, it's knowing when to do those things and when not to do those things and and the extent to which you do them and to not continually do them in the same game once a referee is kind of wise to it. But also, Jack, yeah, Jack, what you touch on there is really important. The Because um, Mourinho refers to it, doesn't he? He says you need to be intelligent, C-words, not stupid. 
C words. And you, and you look at a team like City and Fernandinho is probably the height of an intelligent C word. I mean, he is, uh, you know, a tactical fowler par excellence and City have kind of mastered that intelligent shithousery, I think. Yeah, I was literally just thinking about Fernandinho um, and was going to mention exactly him because he is so, he's so good at that. Like even, you know, on the subject of Harry Kane injuries, the Harry Kane ankle injury that happened in the Champions League quarterfinal first leg at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Last April, I think it was, Kane, I remember uh, Fernandinho just elbowed Kane in the back of the head because he could and no one was watching. And Kane got so riled by it that two minutes later he tried to jump into Fabian Delve right down by the touchline and then went over his ankle and missed the next two months. So yeah, but yeah, Fer- Fernandinho is, I think, the best at it. Obviously, Le Celso has been really, really good at it. But one player who I think has been who's really surprised me, actually, and may prove me wrong, maybe he's got the podcast pinned up on his wall, is Lucas Moura, <laughs> uh, <laughs> who has really, really embraced that kind of defence side of the game. At the game yesterday, you could hear Mourinho shouting in all sorts of different languages to different players, and he was shouting at Lucas all the time to, when it came to defending. But he's turned himself into like quite a disciplined, hard-working, defense, like, defensively-minded left-winger, Charlie. Yeah, so I looked at this last week actually after the Arsenal game because he was staggeringly good in that game from a defensive point of view. And um, in the piece, you'll see there are lots of numbers about it, but it was like record tackle numbers. It was the most tackles by a Spurs player since Jan Vertonghen in a game against Liverpool in 2012. I mean, you know, really crazy. He really put himself about, but also in that game, you know, produced a couple of really telling passes for Kane. Um, the first of which Kane tried to chip the keeper, didn't work. The second of which won the corner from which Spurs scored the winner. And then yesterday, two assists for Lucas. Um, and the first was that really nice weighted pass, you know, the sort of thing he's been accused maybe of not being cute enough uh, to do. And then the Kane second comes from Lucas winning the ball, charging forward. New- uh, the first goal at Newcastle came from him winning the ball high up the pitch. He's been really, really good. And, and and the piece kind of looks at the thing with him. I mean, he he's so well-liked uh, at the club. And there's a story in there um, that Michelle Vaughan told me about during the lockdown. He sent round a, a package of food, to, of homemade Brazilian food to all the players. And that this is just the kind of thing he does. And, you know, he's he's loved and he works so hard. And I think... He's always had that work rate and that popularity and, you know, he's a real fighter apparently in the dressing room. You know, he's someone always trying to get the guys going and I think that's been a part of it, um, you know, and that's why Mourinho's always really liked him. He's loved his attitude. So he's played, he's played more, he's got more appearances under Mourinho than anyone else. Uh, he offers so much and yet he hasn't scored uh, in the Premier League since, the end, since uh, December, that game against Wolves. So you kind of got this guy who he offers loads, but then also he has these fairly big uh, aspects in the debit column, I guess, as well. And I kind of feel with Mora, it kind of comes down to whether you focus on what he has or what he hasn't. You know, he has a lot to offer. Is he ever going to be someone who is a really consistent goal scorer? (laughs) Possibly not, but he does offer loads. And, you know, at the moment, he's making it hard to to be dropped you know and I think a lot of people certainly before the Arsenal game uh, and I mentioned this in the piece it, it would be pretty much every time he started you, there'd be a lot of people complaining why is Lucas starting why does he play he doesn't offer anything and I think he has reminded people that a he offers tons as you say from a defensive point of view but also he has added a bit more poise a bit more guile to his game and uh, hopefully it bodes well for next season when maybe the goals will come back and then you have got a player 
who offers loads, and maybe he's benefiting from having Bergvine there as well, knowing that he he needs to play well. I do wonder if he's going to kind of become to, to Mourinho what Lamella was to Pochettino, like, like the kind of like, like a system player who is in the team for what they'll do off the ball or, or out of possession more than anything else. Um, principally, originally Lamella was there kind of to press and to win the ball back high up the pitch, and that kind of became less of a factor as as time went by and the pressing kind of decreased in Pochettino's team. And I wonder whether you might see that Lucas kind of used in a similar sort of way by Mourinho. I mean, it's not not that he's pressing in a similar way, but he's kind of doing a sort of defensive job in an attacking position. And I wonder yeah. whether that might be something that kind of keeps him in the team for a couple of seasons or certainly in the, in the squad for a couple of seasons. Or maybe like a Park Ji Sung at United under Fergie, who you could always trust yeah. to do a really good defensive job from an attacking position, which meant Park played a disproportionate number of big games. And I wonder if that might uh, sometimes be the same for Lucas, because we know Mourinho loves having wingers who you know who work really hard going backwards, and he seems to fit that paradigm really neatly. Someone else who I think is playing really well, having copped a fair bit of stick this season, is Hugo Lloris, Charlie, who seems to be making a lot of big saves at the moment. Yeah, I mean, yesterday was that save uh, off Iosi Perez in the first half. That is one where you're fully in that millisecond between the ball leaving his foot and it being saved. You just think goal. I mean, he's he hits it so well. He's so close in. That is a save that very, very few keepers are making. And, and just to into context I've looked at this for the last five games so Spurs I think their average xg is 1.1 xga so expected goals against is 1.15 per game whereas in reality they've been conceding 0.4 a game so that tells you that you know they're conceding far fewer than what they would be expected to and a big part of that is because they have a keeper in Hugo Lloris who's been making saves that he just shouldn't be making um you credit to him and, and we've talked about it before and I'm sure you picked up on this yesterday Jack at the game he when you're there at the ground behind closed doors you really do get a sense of how vocal he is like he he's pretty manic actually like it's quite cool he really fired up really talking to the players giving them constant pointers and I wonder as well whether that again talking about does it help having no fans I wonder if uh, the Spurs defence do benefit from actually being able to hear what he says because he is constantly moving them around putting them into position um and yeah, as you say, he's certainly over the last year or so, he's had a lot of criticism for for mistakes. So it is nice to see him looking at something approaching his best form again. It's probably safe to say, isn't it, that he's really benefited from Spurs playing on the back foot, right? You mean just have the, the fact the defence has sat deeper and he doesn't have yeah, to sweep Yeah, so he's, not, he's not being exposed in the same way that he was before. And you know, his biggest errors, I think, were mostly ones where he'd come hurtling out of his goal uh, and misjudged it and made and kind of shown up. Uh, you know there were one or two sort of dropped crosses and stuff, but I, I I wonder whether focusing on kind of staying on your line predominantly sort of makes all that stuff a bit easier. Whether you can kind of focus more on that, not ever having your mind that you're going to have to rush twenty thirty yards out of your goal. I, I just think that might have sort of helped him. It takes away the anxiety, doesn't it? I think it's kind of helps him focus on the fundamentals and not not worry so much about like without wanting to sound you know yada without wanting to kind of. Uh, it, it kind of stops him from thinking too much about the kind of fancy stuff. Yeah, well, he's definitely um, he's one of a number of players who I think is in good form at the moment. Oh, one of the what, something else I wanted to mention is Winks and Sissoko in the middle. I thought that was one of Winks' best games for a while. Um, 
on the ball, I thought he was fantastic just in terms of keeping things going. Played a really good pass over the top to, I can't remember whether it was Kane or Son in the first half. And I thought he was better defensively as well. Like he's, again, he was one of the players who you saw both Lloris and Mourinho shouting to all the time because obviously, you know, we know that Winks can sometimes be exposed a bit defensively, but he had Luis and Jose telling him all the time, like, Winksy, position, position, and, like, telling him where to stand. And I think it actually worked well. Like, I think he was good defensively, and Spurs were never caught on the counter. He's been really... Yeah, I think he's been... As I say, he's come in for those... uh, He was restored to the team for the first of those five games and hasn't lost his place. And I don't think that's a coincidence. But, yeah, after the games I've been at since the restart, I've been going to sleep just hearing, Winksy, Winksy, Winksy. Mourinho does not stop saying that all game. He's just constantly at him. Um, yes, it's kind of been ringing through my ears. So there's clearly, you know, it, it, which shows his importance, I guess, because he is that deep-lying uh, defensive midfielder. I just think he gives them a lot more structure. I think it, it, Sissoko's better. Uh, I mean, Sissoko better when he's got also Lo Celso there. But yeah, I just think they, they look a bit more balanced. And I think the defence uh, benefits from having him there kind of sitting deep as well. And if they can, if they can, if Mourinho can coach some defensive solidity and consistency into Winks, and he'll have a really good player there. I always think with Winks, the problem is the downside is always defensively. But if he can, you know, he's still young. He wants to learn. He's, you know, he's very. Everyone says he's very kind of committed player and trains hard and everything. If Mourinho can not turn him into Thiago Mata because you're not going to do that, but just make him a little bit more. Um, a little bit more effective and responsible off the ball, then he could be really, really useful to Spurs going forward. And someone else who we should really mention is Serge Aurier, who played again um, after the passing of his brother. Um, played pretty well, I thought, for what it's worth. But Ch- Charlie, you, what do you think about the situation surrounding Aurier at the moment? Yeah, I, I, I mean, look, I think it's incredibly difficult uh what he's going through and he's you know that he's playing is um is kind of remarkable i mean i i think what i've found a little bit uncomfortable is uh is this kind of celebration of him being brave and strong for for playing and and i don't really dispute that those things are true but i think in the discussion around mental health i, I don't think that's hugely useful because I think it slightly suggests that if he weren't playing, then that wouldn't be brave or strong. And I think that a situation like this, it's entirely, every case is different. It's so individual. You know, some people, when a tragedy happens, want to be working, others don't. And I think either, however you want to approach it, is totally fine. And I just, I, I don't know, I, I don't, I don't want the message to be that, you know, this is what you what everyone should aspire to i think it's just completely personal and and i don't think there's any bad intention uh or malice when people are saying this i think they think they're being very complimentary to warrior um but yeah i i just think it's something to be aware of and you know we i think we all want to be a bit more uh aware and literate around these kind of issues and you often hear footballers talking about how they found it a very um tough environment and this kind of thing and I just think when, if and when a tragedy happens to a player, which, you know, God forbid, and we, we hope it doesn't, then I, I think they should be, just feel comfortable to do um, and react however however they want. And, I, and I'm not saying anyone's saying, 
to Aurier that he should be playing. Of course, no one's saying that. But yeah, I just think it's a, a totally personal choice. And um, however players want to react to this kind of thing, we, we should always respect that. I'd, yeah, I'd like to completely endorse those comments. I think that you know anyone who's experienced grief and bereavement knows that it is an incredibly personal thing and everybody everybody will react in their own way to it you know they don't it's the the reaction isn't always immediate it takes months or years to to feel the way you feel about things and i don't think that strength and weakness are necessarily a very helpful prism for for viewing how people deal with these situations Hello, I'm James Richardson, host of the Totally Football Show, now part of the Athletics Podcast Network. We're going to be here following all the action as the 2020 football season reaches its belated conclusion. And if you're an Athletics subscriber, you can now hear exclusive ad-free versions of our show on the Athletic app. And don't worry, if you're not a subscriber, you can still listen to us for free with the occasional word from our sponsor by searching for The Totally Football Show on Apple, Spotify and all the usual podcast places. The Totally Football Show with me, James Richardson, still totally free and now totally ad-free on The Athletic. Charlie, something else which you flagged up this week was the future situation of Jaffet Tanganga. What's going on there? Yeah, so this was a piece... um was working on last week and I was reporting that uh, at the moment that the negotiations between the club and player have stalled a little bit um, no agreement is close um, my understanding is that he's been offered around uh, 15 grand a week and the expectation um, was that that might have been higher given that he's had this breakthrough season um, he's current I mean it's it's interesting you know he's currently on just above a thousand a week, which you know, obviously, in normal terms, is 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 very it's very good, very very good, especially for someone that young. But in Premier League football terms, um, you know, given that market, sounds very small. So yeah, I was looking at that and uh, whether you know a situation, a compromise will be reached, and and there is confidence that there will be a compromise. He really wants to stay at Spurs. Uh, the club really want to keep him. Um, and then in the piece, uh, look a bit more broadly on some of the, the dilemmas facing clubs and players with young homegrown talents. And it's a really interesting area because you go from, I mean, it's, you know, you think someone like Tanganga, who this time a year ago, most of the Spurs crowd wouldn't have heard of or been able to pick out in a lineup. Um, and obviously now he's, by playing 11 games, he's, um, you know, a very well established player um, and, you know, looks completely natural in that Premier League environment and is in line for a huge increase. Um, and it's a no-brainer for a club like Spurs. You know, you want to sign up a young talent and it would be catastrophic to lose him on a free. Um, and a lot of it is about protecting value. But it's, it's just very interesting because, you know, you're ta- it's not a leap of faith, I guess, because you, part of it is protecting his value. But, you know, young players develop in such different directions and... Um, in the piece, talk about the fact that uh, Ledley King and Alton Thelwell they were kind of thrust into a game against Liverpool as twenty-year-olds, and at the time were both thought to be really great prospects. And obviously, King developed into one of the finest centre-backs, uh, defenders, captains, uh, you know, club legend, really. Uh, whereas Thelwell didn't play a huge amount and then played in the lower leagues. So it's just very interesting to see how it will turn out. But I think in the case of Tanganga. 
yeah, bit, bit of a delay, certainly at the moment, and there will have to be compromises. But hopefully uh, they will reach an agreement because, you know, he's he's been a real bright spot, I think, on what's often been quite a difficult season for Tottenham. And yeah, the pieces, uh, yeah, pieces on the Athletic went up a few days ago. And another addition to Tottenham's youth ranks is Alfie Devine, the 15-year-old from Wigan Athletic, who obviously in administration at the moment. Um, this is a story that David Ornstein and Adam Crafton have reported on. Uh, it's in David Ornstein's column as well, as the as well as the story that Mauricio Pochettino, former Tottenham manager, uh, has turned down the chance to reunite with Paul Mitchell, former Tottenham head of recruitment at Monaco this summer. So Monaco just sacked Robert Moreno, who was their manager from about halfway through last season, um, according to David's column. Uh, Pochettino was offered the chance to replace Moreno, but he said no, so they've gone for Kovac instead. We, we should mention the game on Sunday because it's actually a huge game uh, now. You know, Spurs can finish... Let, let me just look at the table. Spurs can finish sixth, realistically. Like, if Wolves... Wolves actually play this evening, so by the time you listen to this podcast, the picture might have slightly changed. But Crystal Palace away, a team who've got nothing to play for and have got a game, another game before then, so they won't be as fresh as Tottenham... James, you must be quite optimistic about Sunday now. Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, as you say, Wolves, by the time the listeners hear this, could have leapfrogged Spurs, but then they play Chelsea on the final day. Chelsea, who play Liverpool away on Wednesday night, and you would expect, with all of the emotion of that night, and Liverpool finally getting their hands on the trophy, it's kind of hard to see them. I know it's not impossible, but it's hard to see them losing Liverpool that night. So you, Chelsea will probably need a result against Wolves to secure a top-four finish. Um Though it does help them that Leicester are playing Manchester United. So it's all kind of interlinked. It does kind of feel like it's a bit of a shame that Spurs haven't quite got themselves in a position to capitalise on the, the fact that Manchester United and Leicester are playing each other and kind of maybe hope they could draw and leapfrog both of them. But I mean, I think, as we were saying kind of at the top of the show, uh, to, to have suggested like two weeks ago that Spurs could finish sixth, I think would have seemed quite fanciful. Um, and now, I, as you say, I would be fairly optimistic that they could do that on the last stage. Go, go and win that. I think if they win that game at Palace, I don't think Wolves will win twice. Um, and yeah, and then sixth place finish. It would be you would have seen that as quite a big disappointment at the start of the season. But I, you know, um, I think if you're being really realistic in comparing the the finances of those six clubs, uh, yeah, you, you can't really say that's a complete and utter disaster. And to finish above Arsenal would be pretty good as well. You know, if, if Spurs had beaten Chelsea in that game just before Christmas, or indeed the game at Stamford Bridge, they'd be ahead of them. The thing that plays on my mind is um, the VAR call in the game the Leicester at, one. at Leicester in September, yeah. where Aurier scored. It was a ludicrously tight, like, like kind of toenail offside from Son, uh, when he kind of took the ball out wide and then ran backwards. So it wasn't like he really even benefited from being in that position anyway. That that goal, incidentally, James, whenever anyone says to you about VAR, like, you know, this, I'm, and I think you, you and I are very much in the same camp of not celebrate, you don't really celebrate goals because you're always paranoid. Watch that goal and you understand why. Because that is a goal, even on TV, let alone in the stadium, on TV, you watch that goal and you're not even, you, should, you, you don't even feel scared, really. You know, you, you don't think that's, it shows you that no goal basically is safe. No goal that's is safe, why VAR. Yeah. It, honestly, that's why VAR is just the biggest buzzkill because even that, if you can't celebrate that goal and, and watch that goal in real time, and yeah, it's totally crazy. 
Anyway, if Spurs, if, Spurs, if Spurs had gone two and up in that game and had won that game, I mean, the entire season would have been different. You know, it's, it's more complicated than just saying they'd have uh, currently be on 61 points and Leicester would currently be on 59 and Spurs would be in contention for fourth or whatever. You're talking about a completely different season. Uh, you know, that, those are the margins. And you can say that about probably anything. You know, that I'm sure there was a, a marginal point in, in one of the two United games where you could look at and, you know, that Spurs could have finished above them. Who, you know, who knows? It's, uh, you know, it, that, that's football, isn't it? And that, that's what the game is now. These ludicrous VAR calls for as long as we've got them. Uh, you'll be able to kind of, they really highlight those moments, don't they? I think of, of marginal calls. And of course, if Spurs manage to finish sixth, then am I right in thinking they would be in the Europa League? Whatever they wouldn't, they wouldn't be hanging on whether or not Arsenal win the FA Cup, which is the situation that the seventh place team will be in. And you know, Arsenal could well win that game. Yeah, I mean, and this was again. Sorry to keep plugging pieces, <laughs> <laughs> but like, so I thought week. you were going to plug our conversation. Oh no! Well, that as well. But well, all of this. I mean, I, I was going to plug our conversation, but I mean, all you you and I do is talk about the Premier League table and Sheffield yeah. United's fixtures. But no, I was actually just going to plug another article that I wrote last week on how important Europa League qualification is because I think we recorded before uh, that was out, and and it does look at the swing potentially of about eighty million, uh, forty million for getting in. And then obviously you could deprive another team. So if they were to, the difference, if, if say Spurs finish seventh and then Arsenal in the FA Cup final, that is really huge um, financially for both teams. And also, as we've talked about, the fact that it's a really good chance for Tottenham uh, to win uh, to win the competition. And that was something Mourinho talked about uh, this week as well. Excellent. Well, I think that's probably all we've got time for. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back next week where we will look back on the Crystal Palace game but also the whole of the season. So, so if there's anything you want us to discuss on what we're now calling the Bunch of Podcast, we'll do that next week. But until then, thanks very much, Tom, Charlie and James. Mm-hmm.